This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. going to study, as you can tell, spiritualism and antinomianism. Uh, in case you don't know what the word antinomian means, it means against the law or contrary to the law. In other words, there's a very intimate relationship between um, spiritualism and being against God's law. They are very intimately related uh, ideas. But before we do uh, begin our study, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll just follow our notes here so that uh, everybody can follow along. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the many blessings that we've received uh, during GYC. We thank you that we're able to gather for this seminar this morning, and we ask that uh, you will bless us in our study, that you will give us understanding about the important issues that we face today not only in the world, but in the church. And Father, we ask that uh, you will bless uh, the outreach project that's going to be undertaken today. There's so many people out there who need the message from uh, Great Controversy. What a magnificent book for this time. We ask, Lord, that you will open doors, that you will open hearts, that you will open minds, that those who need to receive the book will be willing to receive it and read it and uh, that they might uh, know what the issues are and come out on the right side when all is said and done. And so be with us and guide us in our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get started. Uh, generally speaking, the word spiritualism conjures up images of evil angels appearing to the living disguised as departed relatives and friends. That's the way we usually understand the word spiritualism. But the core of spiritualism is far more profound. In order to understand its essence, we must go to the place where it originated, the Garden of Eden. That's where spiritualism originated. And that's where antinomianism originated with regards to this earth. So let's read Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17 as we begin our study this morning. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you sh shall surely eat die. Now, we find several important truths revealed in these verses. First, a personal God outside of man, not inside man, outside of man, is the absolute arbiter or definer of what constitutes good and evil. Are you understanding that point? That's very important. God, that is that personal God, outside of man, in unambiguous language, told Adam and, Adam and Eve through Adam that eating from all the trees of the garden was good, but to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was evil. God is a God of distinctions. Is he not? Light darkness, day, night, holy day, Sabbath, regular days, male, female. At creation, God is a God of distinctions. The standard of right and wrong was not found within Adam and Eve, but rather without. That's an important point, vital. That is to say the standard was objective rather than subjective. The only security for Adam and Eve was in choosing to render explicit obedience to the external command of God. 
without reservation, without trying to rationalize, without going by intuition, without going by what others said. Uh, their only safety was to do what God said. Now, secondly, God clearly explained what would happen if Adam and Eve disobeyed his objective command and ate from the forbidden tree. He told them in no uncertain terms that if they ate from the tree, they would surely die. So God reveals to them what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. He is the source of ethics outside of man. And God clearly reveals the consequences of one choice versus the other choice. Thus, the original test for Adam and Eve was simple and clear. Would you agree with that it was a simple and clear? I mean, God could have told Adam, jump to the moon and back. That would have been a big test. But he gave him a simple test and a clear test. Nothing ambiguous, nothing nebulous about the command. It was very absolutely clear. And that simple and clear test was obey God's objective command and live or disobey and die. Now, it would be well to remember that all the principles of the Ten Commandments were contained in this one command. And the reason I bring this up is because when Adam and Eve disobeyed this one command, they were disobeying all of the principles of the Ten Commandments. You say, how is this? Well, let's notice. This is seen by the fact that when Eve broke this one command, she broke the principles of them all. Among other things, she wanted to be God. Is that true? You shall have no other gods before me. She dishonored her heavenly father, right? Did she? Ellen White says that commandment applies to our heavenly father, not only to our earthly parents. Did she slap the creator in the face? Yes, she did. Did she lead Adam to sin, which brought death into the world? Absolutely. Did she choose another spiritual lover? You know, marriage is used to describe the relationship between us and God, the spiritual relationship. We're supposed to have only one husband. She chose another. Did she steal what didn't belong to her? Yes, she did. Uh, did she bear false witness? We're going to notice that she did. She actually exaggerated God's words. She added to God's words. Did she covet? Yeah, she coveted the fruit. So basically contained in this one command were all of the principles of the Ten Commandments. So when Adam and Eve disobeyed this one command, in principle they were disobeying God's law. That's the point. Now Satan used five methods to leave Eve to disobey God's clear, simple word. He used five methods, and we're going to take a look. We're going to dedicate a good period of time to these five methods. And I'm going to summarize them first, and then we're going to study them in detail. Number one, perform a miracle by disguising himself behind a snake that, that talked. Uh, was, that a, what is that, was that a miraculous thing to, to uh, make a serpent talk? Of course. The devil performed a miracle by giving, apparently, the, the serpent the ability to talk. Secondly, second method that the devil uses to try and lead Eve to disobey is to distort God's word and to entice Eve to add to God's word. In other words, playing with God's word. In the third place, the devil tries to lead Eve to disobey, and he actually did, by following the logic of her mind. In the fourth place, the devil leads Eve to disobey God's word by leading her to follow the testimony of her senses. And finally, the devil uses Eve to lead Adam into disobedience to God's word. Now, let's take a look at these methods. The first method and methods one and two, actually. The first method is to perform a counterfeit miracle. And the second method is to adulterate God's word. Let's read Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? So you have God's word involved, right? God said. The serpent is saying, God said. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Is that accurate? That's not accurate. God had said that they could eat from every tree. But the devil is saying, God has said that you can't eat of every tree of the garden. Now the devil has a special tr a strategy in adulterating the word of God. He wants to engage Eve in conversation. See, we're going to do a little psychological study here. The devil wants to engage Eve in conversation. Now how can he engage her in conversation? He can engage her by misquoting God's word so that she corrects him. Is that what happens? Of course. Because when, when the devil says, God has said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, uh, immediately Eve says, wait a minute. She's got to respond. She's got to defend the honor of God. And so, do you notice that here in verse 1, you have first of all a serpent talking, that's a miracle in itself, counterfeit miracle, because snakes don't talk. And secondly, a misuse of God's word. That's what the devil is doing. Now, notice chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. The devil is trying to uh, engage her in conversation. And the woman said, and I added there in brackets, correcting the serpent and adding to God's word. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, yes, you die, lest you die. <laughs> what is Eve doing? She is adding to God's word because she wants to defend the honor of God. So she's exaggerating. In fact, Ellen White makes this point. She says that, that when Eve said, God has told us not to eat it, but not only not to eat it, but not to touch it. She says that the serpent plucked the fruit and put it in her hand. And then he said to her, are you dead? She had said that God said, don't eat it or touch it or else you'll die. Now she's touching it and she's not dead. But God had not said, don't touch it. God had said what? Don't eat it. So, so the basic point here is that, that the devil is performing a counterfeit miracle, and he is, he is leading Eve to exaggerate God's word, and he is misquoting God's word. There's a misuse of God's word, in other words. And what is the purpose of the miracle and the misuse of God's word? To get Eve to what? To disobey God's clear command. And then you have method number three. And uh, I'm going to just uh, dedicate some time to this. And then later on, in a few minutes, we're going to, I'm going to summarize once again what we're going to deal with in verses four and five. Because this is, this is the critical part of the passage. In verses 4 and 5, the third method that the devil uses is to lead Eve to follow her reasoning powers, her intuition, her logic, instead of doing what God said. Let's examine. This is a very, very dangerous argument that the devil is using. He's playing mind games. He's a psychologist. So the devil says... So God has said you can't eat of any tree. She says, no, 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 no. God says that we can eat of every tree. But that if we eat from this tree, God has said that if we eat from this tree, we're going to die. Hmm. Now, in verse 4, it says, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. What does that create in the mind of Eve? 
something that is known psychologically as cognitive dissonance. There's a conflict in her mind now that has been planted by the devil. Because she says, God has said that if we eat from the tree, we're going to die. Now, the serpent is telling me that if we eat from the tree, we're not going to die. So if we're, if we're not going to die, why did God say that we were? Are you with me? The devil is a master psychologist. He, know, he knows how to play games with our minds. That's why our only protection is to do what God says. I mean, if God says that marriage is between a man and a woman, that's it. Oh, no, but they get along fine. They've been together for 40 years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we need to be merciful and kind and loving. I agree, but that doesn't mean that God approves of gay marriage. God said, God established marriage between a man and a woman. And it's distressing to me that youth these days, you know, it's especially the youth these days, you know, they're, they're, they want to be so open-minded that there's an umbrella for all kinds of sin. The fact is that God establishes the rules, and when we live by those rules, we're fully happy. And when we don't, a disaster ensues, a disaster results. And so Eve is saying, now wait a minute. God said we were going to die. And now you're telling me that we're not going to die. So what I want to know, see, he's planted, the, he's planted a question in Eve's mind. Says, she says, what I really want to know now then is if we're not going to die, why did God say that we were? Are you with me? Ah, does the devil have an answer? He knows. He's planted the question, and now he's going to answer it. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For, what does the word for? Because, now I'm going to give you the reason. He said, Now, now I'm going to tell you why God said you're going to die when you're really not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. In other words, God wants you to be blind. There's something he's hiding from you. Something he does not want you to see. See, he keeps you from eating the tree because there's something he doesn't want you to see. He wants you to be blind to a certain fact. And what is, Eve, what is Eve thinking at this point? Come on, tell me, tell me. The devil has her engaged. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, listen carefully. He says, you will be like God. What is the devil telling Eve? He's saying, listen, the real reason why God told you that you're going to die if you eat from the tree is because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want any rivals. Only he wants to be God. Are you following me? He knows that if you eat from the tree, you're going to be, you're going to be God like him. And he, he doesn't want any rivals. And so what he's done is, you know, when, and he's actually insinuating that at some point God ate from that tree and he became God. And from that point on, when he saw the powers that eating from the tree gave, he intimidated everybody afterwards by saying, if you eat, you're going to die, because he didn't want anybody to be like him. Wow. Almost overmastering delusion. What should Eve have done? Eve should have said, what you say makes sense. What you say, I hear, but God has told us not to eat and we're not eating. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
it's the identical word Elohim that is used in Genesis 1 verse 1. The devil is not saying you're going to be little gods. He's saying you will be like God, like Elohim. Now, there's something, yes. The devil is simply panning off on Eve what he did in heaven. We're going to come to that. We're going to come to that. That's a very important point. Now, there's another important point here. Are you, are you following the logic so far? So, Eve is, so what is Eve thinking at this point when the devil says, uh, you know, if you, God says that you're going to die, but really he knows, he, he doesn't want you to open your eyes to the fact that if you eat from the tree, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want any rivals. And so now Eve is saying, aha, God didn't explain why we weren't supposed to eat from the tree. He said we were going to die, but he didn't say why we weren't supposed to eat from the tree. Now I have my explanation. What is the devil using? Her reasoning powers. She says, this makes sense. But there's another very important point. In what sense was she going to be like God? Ah, listen carefully to this. This is extremely important. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, what? Knowing good and evil. Let me ask you, who distinguishes between good and evil? Who defines good and evil? God. What is the devil saying? The devil saying, you don't have to depend on God to know what is good and evil. If you eat from the tree, you will know what is good and evil. You won't have to depend on an external source to yourself. Wow. Let me ask you, does spiritualism have anything to do with disobedience? Hmm. What was the purpose of the devil disguising himself through a medium, the serpent. It was to lead Eve to disobey God's law, to disobey God's word. Now let's go to method number four, and then I'm going to read you a summary statement of what we just noticed because it's extremely important. Uh, what was method number four? You have it there. Uh, three was to use her reasoning powers independently of God. Number four was to lead Eve to follow the testimony of her senses. Do people today live by their senses? Hey, if it looks good, it's got to be good. If it tastes good, try it. You'll like it. People not only live by their reasoning powers independently of God, they live by their senses. Now notice what it says there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. It says, so when the woman what? Saw that the tree was good for food. What is involved there? Not only her sight, but her what? Taste. It looked good. She said, I'd like to try it. Tastes pretty good, probably. That it was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. Her ears have been involved too, right? She took, what sense is involved there? Touch. She took of its fruit and she ate. Taste. She's following the testimony of her senses instead of following what God said. And then the last method is that the devil used a human being to lead another human being into sin. Does the devil do that today through peer pressure? By the way, do you know what Adam's great sin was? He loved Eve more than he loved God. Did Adam know that Eve had committed a terrible mistake? Yes. And Paul says that Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Adam knew exactly what Eve had done. So why did Adam eat from the fruit? Because he says, I cannot fathom the idea of living without Eve. He lived. He actually sinned because he loved Eve more than he loved God. And by the way, he allowed Eve to assume the leadership role in leading him into sin when Adam should have looked out for her 
and not permitted her to stray from his side, he should have been supervising so that she would not be deceived by the serpent. So you have a reversal of leadership roles. And that same reversal is being appealed to today, both in the home and in the church. Now, let's, uh, so far so good? Okay, now let's go to, to a summary of method number three. Satan blatantly tells Eve that God is a liar. You can't really trust what? God's word. He has a hidden agenda. He is keeping secrets. He is trying to intimidate you and to keep you what? Enslaved. He wants you to render him blind service. Eve's natural question would be what? What is God's hidden agenda? What secret is God trying to keep from us and why? Why would he want us to blindly obey him? Why would he want us to think that we are going to die if we're not going to die? Satan has an answer for Eve. The word for, for. A very important word because it connects with the previous verse. God knows something he doesn't want you to know is what the devil is saying. He is hiding the truth from you for some ulteri ulterior motive. Do you want to know why? And what is he thinking? So yeah, tell me. And the devil says, it is not because you're going to die. It is because God knows that when you eat, you will be like him in a very special sense. You will possess the uncanny ability to know good and evil without God having to tell you what it is. You will have an internal, innate, natural ability to discriminate between good and evil without God having to tell you so. Is that the same thing that the devil told the angels in heaven? Yeah? Absolutely. Notice this statement from great controversy. By the way, did the devil want to be like God? Did he say, I will be like the Most High? Hey, he used these methods in heaven. He says, hey, if they worked up there, they should work down here too. Notice this statement from Ellen White. He reiterated his claim that angels needed no control. What is it that he claimed controlled the angels? God's law. Too many rules and regulations. He reiterated his claim that angels needed no control, but should be left to follow what? Is that what he told Eve? Yeah, he, he, he told the angels, you don't have to do what God says. You know in yourself what is right and what is wrong. So, but should be left to follow their own will, which would ever guide them right. So what is the devil telling the angels what their source of ethics is? Internal. Yeah. You don't, God doesn't have to tell you from outside. You got it inside. By the way, this is the fundamental heresy of the emergent church and of every false philosophy in the history of the world. She continues saying, he denounced the divine statutes as a restriction of their liberty and declared that it was his purpose to secure the abolition of law. And now listen to this. This is a very important word that's coming up. That freed from this restraint. The hosts of heaven might enter upon a more exalted, more glorious state of existence. Freed from what? He wanted to be free from the law. Now, I want you to remember that word freed. That's a very important word that we're going to take a look at later on. Do you know Ellen White had to deal with the issue of pantheism in the early 1900s that was trying to penetrate the Adventist church. And pantheism, of course, is just 
disguised spiritualism is what it is. And she called um, pantheism with some very strange terminology. She called it um, free loveism. Say what? Who would ever call pantheism free loveism? The question is, free love, free from what? Free love that is free from what? From the law. Is there such a thing that of as love free from the law? No. And yet the world today says, oh, well, you know, you all have to do the loving thing. You know, if two men love each other and they want to get married, well, in the name of love, it should happen. If, if you would like to, you know, ordain women as pastors, you know, that's the loving, merciful thing and just thing to do. And everything is done, everything is justified in the name of love, but freed from the law. Now, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Satan is insinuating that God developed this keen sense of discrimination between good and evil by eating from the tree. And then he intimidated everyone else by telling them that they would die if they ate from it. When Satan tempted Eve, he not only sought to pan off the lie that she would not surely die, if she ate from the tree. His intention was far deeper. He took it a step further, and we noticed that he was saying that she would know what? Good and evil. Satan was saying to Eve that if she ate from the forbidden tree, she would be like God in a certain particular way. As God, she would be able by personal experience to distinguish between good and evil without recourse to God's objective command. Satan was basically telling Eve, God has told you that if you disobey his objective command, you will surely die, but this is not true. Rather, if you eat from the tree, you will develop your own capacity to define what is good and what is evil. You will no longer need to depend on God to know what good and evil is. You can know this for yourself without God. Are you understanding what, uh, what is involved here? Satan is blasphemously insinuating that at some point in the past God had eaten from the tree. And by doing so, he had acquired the capacity to distinguish between good and evil. But having acquired this capacity, God did not want anyone else to have it. So from that point on, he sought to keep others from eating by the tree, from the tree by intimidating them with the thought that they would die if they ate. Thus, the first temptation is closely related to the law of God and to the doctrine of the state of the dead. Folks, the essence of spiritualism is the rejection of God's law as an absolute criterion to distinguish between good and evil, between right and wrong. It teaches, disobey God's law, depend on your own internal source for ethical decisions, and you will still live forever. Satan's devious strategy is to substitute a subjective standard for right and wrong in place of the objective, infallible Word of God. Spiritualism downplays the importance of obedience to God's law and the seriousness of sin. It emphasizes the love of God and creates an imaginary conflict between it and the law of God. It underlines the idea that God accepts us unconditionally. By the way, God does not accept us unconditionally. He loves us unconditionally. It underlines the idea that God accepts us unconditionally. He accepts us, but he doesn't accept our behavior like so many people think. And that there will be no judgment or punishment for sin, which is defined as transgression of the law. Now listen to this definition that Ellen White gives of spiritualism. Really interesting. She says, spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen demigods. That each mind will judge itself. 
If you are God, who's going, to do, who's going to judge you? If God is going to judge you and you are God, who's going to be your judge? You are. Isn't that comforting? Hey, if I have to judge myself, I'm saved. <laughs> so she says, spiritualism asserts that men are unfallen demigods, that each mind will judge itself. That true knowledge, listen, true knowledge, that's what the devil was saying in the Garden of Eden. True knowledge places men above the law. That all sins committed are innocent. Because if you are God, who's doing the sinning? God is. That's why Ellen White says that pantheism simply attributes sin to God. Because every, if everything is God, or God is in everything, panentheism, that means that sin is done by whom? By God. She continues saying that all sins committed are innocent, for whatever is right is right, whatever is is right, and God doth not condemn. The basis of human beings it represents as in heaven and highly exalted there. Thus it declares to all men, live as you please, heaven is your home. Multitudes are thus led to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. Notice that she doesn't mention seances there and dead relatives appearing to you. That's included in spiritualism. But the whole objective of spiritualism is to lead people to follow an internal standard and disobey God's external standards. That's the essence and the bottom line of spiritualism. I saw somebody's hand. Yes. Right. And that's the mood of the world today. The mood of the world is anything goes. Let me ask you something. If, if everything is God, then is everyone God? So let me ask you then, what right, do I have to what right do I have to impose my ethical system on you if we're both God? Are you understanding me? When, when pantheism, and I have much more on pantheism I'm not going to be able to give here, but, but when pantheism tried to penetrate the Adventist church, if it had been embraced in the Adventist church, there would be no Adventist church today. It would have been obliterated. Because it was, it was an attack against every tenet of the Adventist church. And listen, if, if pantheism is true and God is in all time and in all space, then uh, there's nothing that is holy and there's nothing that is common. Because if everything is God, everything is holy. Which means that there's no room for a holy day distinguished from secular days. So the devil is really trying to get rid of the Sabbath. And he's trying to get rid of the distinction between good and evil through pantheism and through spiritualism. Did I see somebody else's hand? Uh, yes. It's the same tenet of, you can call it the emergent church, you can call it spiritual formation, you can call it existentialism. You know, all the, all the philosophies, pragmatism. If it works, it's good. Come on, what do you mean if it works, it's good? You know, American education is based on, on, on that idea from William James and, and John Dewey. You know, pragmatism, practical, you know, try it. And if it works, experimentation, then it's good. Well, that's all okay when you're dealing with experimentation and things that doesn't deal with ethics. It's called by many different names, brother, but the bottom line is that, that and, and this is the key point that I want us to get uh, in our minds today in the seminar, the bottom line is that the devil wants you to follow your source of ethics instead of God's. That's it. Let me ask you, why is the devil going to impersonate dead relatives and have them appear to us uh, in the last days? Yeah, okay, well, yeah, he, he's going to appeal. Are those people going to look real? Are they going to sound real? Are they going to know things that only they do? 
Are they going to appeal to our emotions and feelings? Ellen White says, yes. Imagine a mother appearing and saying, oh, it's me, son. No, 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 the Bible says, oh, please, son. Ellen White says that they will appear to Adventists. And they will appeal to the emotions and the feelings and everything. What are we going to say? Oh, wow, this has got to be my relative. It talks like my relative, looks like it, it wants to embrace me. It's got to be my relative. No! The living know that they will die. The dead know nothing. That's our only protection. But people today, they go by their senses and by their reason and by what the media says, you know. If the media says it's okay and if the movies say it's okay, we can't trust any of that stuff. The bottom line of the emergent church and, and postmodernism and all of that is make your heart your own center of ethics. It's not, it's not rocket science. You don't have to know all of the definitions and everything of all of the terms, but that is the bottom line. Did I see somebody else's hand? Yes. Uh, it's there in education, 227, 228. The footnotes are on there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You know what the devil's ultimate overmastering delusion is going to be? It's Satan impersonating Christ's second coming. Is he going to look like Christ? Is he going to talk like Christ? Is he going to perform miracles like Christ? Yes, he is. He's going to walk the way Jesus walked and talk the way Jesus talked. He's going to even say some beautiful things that Jesus said, Ellen White says. And, it, and he's, going to, you know, he's going to be bright like Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Now, why does he do that? What is his ultimate purpose? His ultimate purpose is, is to then, then he's going to say, he's going to say to everyone, I have come to tell you why the world is such a mess. The reason the world is such a mess is because I'm not honored. My resurrection is not honored by the observance of Sunday. And if everybody started observing Sunday in my honor, everything would greatly improve. How many are going to be deceived by that? Almost everybody. Why? What is our only protection going to be? Listen, my Bible says that Christ is not touching the earth. And you're walking there. You know, one pastor once said ignorantly, he says, I'm not interested in what's coming or how he's coming. I'm only interested in who's coming. If you don't know how he's coming, you're going to accept the wrong who. I'm serious. Two ways that we will know that this is not Christ. And both of them are biblical. Number one, you're walking on the earth and the Bible says that Jesus will stay in the air. And number two, the Bible says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and you're saying it's Sunday, and I go by what the Bible says. So what is the source that will protect us in the end time crisis? God's holy word. Let's not argue with it. You know, when the Bible says that, that the... Uh, Elder in the church must be the husband of one wife. Now, what part of husband of one wife don't you understand? <laughs> People can try and twist it around, and they, like the devil did in the Garden of Eden. You can, can try and make it mean what it doesn't. You know, head doesn't mean head. It means origin. Submit doesn't mean submit. It means get along. And redefine words and redefine phrases and twist things around. The fact is, in two passages, as the Apostle Paul says, that the elder or the overseer must be the husband of one wife, and he must manage his house well. That's good enough for me. I hope it's good enough for you too. And I have nothing against women. I have a wonderful wife. I've been married 42 years. 
It's just that God has given different roles. It doesn't make women inferior to men. No, he has given different functions. It's a matter of function. It's not a matter of equality. But it's been made a matter of equality. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, you'll notice in the next paragraph, postmodernism and the ideas proposed by the emerging church movement are not recent innovations, but rather go all the way back to the beginning. Are you understanding that now? Spiritualism is anthropocentric in that it emphasizes internal standards for choices, such as feelings, reason, intuition, the loving thing, and felt needs. Have you ever heard of felt needs? You know, many times felt needs are not real needs. I mean, the drunk has a strong felt need for beer. That doesn't mean that that's the right need. Now, what is spiritualism standard? We usually think of spiritualism in the crudest terms as a place where a seance is held and Satan or one of his evil angels appears disguised as a departed relative or friend. But as we have seen, the word spiritualism is far more embracing. Now notice this very interesting description from Ellen White. She says, it is true that spiritualism is now changing its form. Is that true? It's camouflaged. And veiling some of its more objectionable features is assuming a Christian guise. The emergent church, they don't say we're spiritualists. They say we're Christians. We just want to change the way the church is done. She continues saying, but its utterances from the platform and the press have been before the public for many years, and in these, its real character stands revealed. These teachings cannot be denied or hidden. Even in its present form, so far from being more worthy of toleration than formerly, it is really a more dangerous because a more subtle deception. While it formerly denounced Christ and the Bible, it now professes to accept both. But the Bible isn't, li now listen carefully, but the Bible is what? You know, this whole issue of women's ordination and, and uh, gay marriage and everything is based on how you interpret the Bible. That's the real issue. Hermeneutics, it's called. Do you take the Bible as it reads? Or do you try to say, well, Paul, you know, he, he was a captive of his culture. You know, he was a male chauvinist. So we have to just kind of, we got to get Paul caught up with the times. That's the idea. That's a hermeneutical way of handling the scripture. You don't take the scripture as it reads seriously. You try to impose culture on scripture. So she says, but the Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart while its solemn and vital truths are made of no effect. And now listen to this. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God. What does spiritualism say? The main attribute of God is what? Love. True love? No, no, no. Listen to what she says. Love is dwelt upon as the chief attribute of God, but it is degraded to a weak what? sentimentalism, and now notice this, making little distinction between what? Good and evil. Does that have anything to do with Genesis 2? And then she speaks about the other side. See, God is love, but God is also justice. You know, God will not be trifled with. There are some stories in the Bible we don't like. Uzzah. Let me ask you, does God t really take it personally when we uh, treat holy things as if they were common? Or common things as if they were holy? Hmm. Uzzah. Common hands touching a holy ark. Ananias and Sapphira had set aside holy money and they kept it for secular purposes. Achan, 
Achan stole the tithe, really, because Jericho, everything in Jericho was to be saved for the sanctuary service. The gold, the silver, the, the, the fabric, everything was to be used for the sanctuary. It was God's tithe of the promised land. It was the first, it was the first city conquered, so it was God's tithe. God said, this is mine, don't take anything. So Achan was really stealing God's tithe. How about Nadab and Abihu? When God says holy fire, does he mean holy fire? Or does he mean any fire? He means holy fire. See, we can't trifle with God. God is love, yes, but God is also just. Now notice what she says. The people are taught to disregard, oh, excuse me, a little bit before that, but it is degraded to a weak sentimentalism, making little distinction between good and evil. God's justice, his denunciations of sin, the requirements of his holy law are all kept out of sight by spiritualism. The people are taught to regard the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, as what? As a dead letter. Pleasing, bewitching fables captivate the senses and lead men to reject the Bible as the foundation of their faith. Christ is as verily denied as before. But Satan has so blinded the eyes of the people that the deception is not what? The deception is not discerned. Wow. What a profound definition of what is involved in spiritualism. In this next statement, she says, Satan is making the world believe that the Bible is a mere what? Fiction. Or at least a book suited to the infancy of the race but now to be lightly regarded or cast aside as obsolete. So does the devil have a replacement? If the devil convinces the world, well, look at Genesis 1 through 11, come on. Do you really believe that God created the world in six days? What, in the, what's, what person with a scientific mind would ever believe such foolishness is what people say. Do you believe? Let me ask, do you believe? Yes. By faith, we believe. You know, I don't have to have any proof from science. All I need is for God to tell me so. I've, it's settled in my mind. It's been settled for years in my mind that what God says in His Word, I can trust. Science, yeah, scientism it has become, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. So, so you'll notice here that, that, Ellen, uh, that Ellen White says that, that Satan wants to do away with the authority of God's Word. Does he have a replacement for it? Notice. And to take the place of the Word of God, he holds out spiritual manifestations. In other words, your internal you know, your feelings, your emotions. She's talking about, you know, speaking in tongues, and she's talking about jumping in church and rolling in the aisles and laughing in the spirit. Uh, that's the context of, a context of what she's saying. You know, say that, that shows that you're a spiritual person. Now, why does the devil want people to depend on spiritual manifestations instead of de in depending on his word? Why does he want to annihilate God's word? Ah, listen carefully. Here is a channel wholly under his control. By this means, he can make the world believe what? The world believe what he will. Now, I have about eight more pages to cover, but we'll, what we'll do is we'll cover those um, in our seminar tomorrow afternoon. I think it's at 3.45 that we have the final seminar. Uh, but I want to end with, with a very important point. I'm going to talk more about the pantheism issue tomorrow and the emergent church and postmodernism more specifically uh, because we're repeating the history of, of 1903. The only difference is that back then it was localized in Battle Creek whereas now it's a global problem. It's a huge problem and a very dangerous problem. 
But I want to end with, with a very interesting Bible story that illustrates the relationship between disobedience and witchcraft. You remember that God told Saul, King Saul, to destroy the Amalekites and everything they had. Leave nothing. But what did Saul do? What Saul did is he said, well, there's some real nice animals here that we can use to sacrifice to the Lord. Did he have a good motivation? Yeah, he had good motives. So did Uzzah when he touched the ark. He didn't want the ark to fall. See? Your good motivations do not justify your disobedience. Oh, well, he was disobedient in, many other, er in other, many other areas before this. And so, and so uh, he, he saves these animals supposedly because they're going to be sacrificed in the sacrificial service. And Samuel comes, and Samuel, you know, he says, have you done what the Lord said you're supposed to do? He says, oh, yeah, I've obeyed the Lord. I destroyed the king, and I destroyed the Amalekites. And uh, Samuel says, and what is it that I hear outside? Oh, Saul says, oh, I, you're hearing the animals. I saved those to sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says, well, you wise guy. Is that what he says? No. He says, you're insane. You have disobeyed the word of the Lord, he says. And then he makes a very interesting statement. He says, rebellion is as witchcraft. Is there any relationship between disobedience to God's word and witchcraft? Yes, because the devil's whole intention in using spiritualism is to lead you to disobey God's word to be disobedient to God's holy law. And folks, as Adventists, we have the message that the world needs to hear. We need to bring the world back to God's law, not in a legalistic sense. God wanted Adam and Eve to obey him because they loved him. But nevertheless, it's still obedience. We need to bring the world back and say, hey folks, when you obey God, life is full, life is peaceful, life is joyful. That's where life really is in obeying the Lord. You're healthier, you're happier, you're holier, you're more joyful. Your relationships are better. And so we need to lead people to love the Lord and to understand that when they love the Lord, they will want to obey God's law strictly as it's found in His Holy Word. That's why... The Bible tells us that the characteristic of God's people is they keep the commandments of God. It says also that they, they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And in the other text, in Revelation 12, verse 17, it says they have the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? Are you thankful for the spirit of prophecy? Without the spirit of prophecy, there would be no Seventh-day Adventist church today. There would be no Loma Linda. There would be no Avondale. There would be no Newbold, which are centers where Adventist theology is being questioned. None of those places would exist because Ellen White had a direct hand in finding those places to establish those educational institutions. In fact, there probably would be no Andrews University either. How can we, how can we forget the great gift that God has given to the Adventist Church? How, what it is to slight God by giving us this wonderful gift of the spirit of prophecy. It's precious. And if you come to the spirit of prophecy with the intention of doubting, you'll find plenty of reasons to doubt. But if you come to the spirit of prophecy to be blessed, you will be greatly blessed. Because some people nitpick with Ellen White. 
you know? She got the number of rooms in a sanitarium wrong. She was wrong about the bell that marked the beginning of the St. Bartholomew massacre. Does it really make any difference what bell rang? The important point is that a bell rang and it marked the beginning of the massacre. Don't nitpick. There's little, you know, the, 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 the white estate has answered almost every single one of the objections that people make to the spirit of prophecy. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, time is up, but let me just tell you an experience that will probably encourage you when you go out to give the great controversy. I was in New Jersey probably about three or four months ago, and I was invited to the home of the people that invited me to preach there. There was a young man that they invited there also, and he told a very interesting testimony. He said, one Sabbath morning, I was standing on a street in front of a store, and I saw this lady come by, uh, walking, uh, very nicely dressed with a Bible under her, in her hand. And uh, he said, wow, that's interesting. Saturday morning, with a Bible under her hand, really nicely dressed, where's she going? So she said, he said, uh, uh, lady, where are you going? She says, oh, I'm going to church. He said, no, but, uh, but uh, church is tomorrow. Today's Saturday. She says, oh, no, no, no. My church keeps Saturday. He says, really? There's a church that keeps Saturday? She says, yeah. He said, can I go with you? She said, sure, let's go. And so they went to the Adventist church. When they went in, uh, one of the elders was at the entrance. The young man says to him, uh, sir, is this the church that keeps the Sabbath the way the Bible says? And the elder said, uh, yes, yes, we come to church every Saturday. He says, well, if this is the church that keeps Saturday, this is my church. Amen. He stayed there, started attending church. Well, it just so happens that that very Sabbath, the pastor in his sermon mentioned uh, the spirit of prophecy and Ellen White. And this young man said, spirit of prophecy, Ellen White. Hmm. He says, I better go check that out on the internet. So he went to the internet, and you know most of the websites are hateful of Ellen White. I mean, other than the White Estate, there's not very many that are positive. And he looked at website after website with criticism after criticism, and he says, I thought to myself, do I really want to belong to a church that has a prophet like this? And then he said, I got to thinking. He says, you know, there was no prophet in the Bible ever that anyone liked. So if this woman is hated so much, she must have been right. <laughs> so I went to church the next Sabbath, and he said, can I have something that was written by Ellen White? So the elder said, here, the book Great Controversy. He read the Great Controversy in a week. He still was not baptized. He came back the next Sabbath, he says, there is no doubt whatsoever that the person who wrote this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I want to become a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Great Controversy is a powerful book if we can get people to read it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. What wonderful gifts you have given us. There's no reason for us to go astray. But our sinful human hearts many times want to go in a different direction. I ask the Lord that you will break our hearts, that you will break our selfishness, our egocentricity, that you will help us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, without question, without reservation. It's so wonderful to live that way because the buck stops with you. Help us to live that way. Enter our hearts that it might be a reality. Bless the missionary project today. Help us to contact the people that you would have us contact. And bless us as we speak and as we witness. We thank you, Father, for your presence with us. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.